Uh, our study of the Gospel of Mark as we head into 2020, um, a lot of good things in store. Um, but today, remember last week we talked about everybody's favorite topic and subject, which was taxes. Today we're talking about our second favorite subject, fasting. That's a joke, people. You can laugh. Nobody likes fasting. I've titled the message, A Hunger for Fasting, and a couple of questions. This is what Jesus talks about this week, and so my question for you is, what is fasting? I mean, it seems like most people, at least Christians, think fasting is a good thing, something that all of us should at least consider doing (laughs) later. (laughs) At some point, it'd be a good idea to fast, maybe. One day, I'm going to fast. But just like with exercise, (laughs) we have somewhat of a love-hate relationship with fasting, don't we? (laughs) Me per okay. Let me just let me just insert this. Me personally, all right. I hate fasting. (laughs) Don't judge me. You do too. You just wouldn't admit it. To me, it's like fasting is kind of like a step above putting cigarettes out on your own arm. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I just love pizza, you know, and. And so, but what has happened in the church today is that this idea, this activity of fasting has been assigned this spiritual mystery, a mystic sort of activity. And I don't really exactly know what it is. And I don't really buy into many of the popular teachings about fasting that are out there. There are tons of modern day opinions about fasting, but the best I can tell from scripture Most of these opinions are pure conjecture and speculation. There's not a ton of teaching in the New Testament about it. The most common teaching on fasting that is out there that most of you have probably heard, I know I have, is that something magical happens to us and gets us closer to God, makes us better followers of Jesus when we engage in the discipline of fasting. So how often should we do it, if that's the case? Are we commanded to fast? Is it a command in Scripture? Do you ever feel guilty about not fasting? And when you do fast, let's say you know how to fast and you do it, do you feel accomplished? What are the benefits? Does it draw you closer to God? Or maybe your prayers just have a better chance of getting answered? I don't know. See, your answers to these questions reveals a tremendous amount about how well you understand the gospel of Jesus, in my opinion. What did Jesus teach us through words and actions about this mysterious thing called fasting? Is it possible that many of us have it all wrong? My premise today is that the popular understanding of fasting changes once you put Jesus right at the center of the subject. And take religion out of it. Here's the passage for this week from Mark chapter 2, 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, they should be celebrating when the host of the party is there. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
No one sews a piece of unshrunken new cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. The garment gets even bigger holes in it. And no one puts new wine. We just sung about this, by the way. Some of you may not even know what new wine is. We'd sing the song, but many people don't. What's new wine? Well, we're going to learn today. No one puts new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. So you are the, so you, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So let's talk about the history of fasting. And I want to talk about how fasting had gone wrong in many respects. Something is happening here in this teaching that Jesus is doing. Jesus is forcing a change on how these people viewed fasting and giving us something to learn today. First of all, I want to tell you about the history of fasting as it relates to the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was the once a year celebration where they would do a a sacrifice for the people so that their sins would be forgiven. It was a pretty big deal. It was the highest uh, point on the Jewish calendar. And that was the only, get this now, that was actually the only type of fasting ever sanctioned in the Old Testament. And it was right before the Day of Atonement. And the purpose behind fasting on the Day of Atonement was that you would be reminded of the price, the lament, the pain that comes with the fact that there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood and suffering. The shedding of blood is the key to forgiveness of sin. So fasting was really set up as an object lesson for you to understand. Listen, before you go into this Day of Atonement and seek all the benefits of the ceremonial aspects of it, understand it comes with a cost. There's a lamb to be slaughtered for your sin. This was the mourning part of the annual atonement, capturing the sorrow and the suffering and the brokenness. This is a key thing. More on that later, by the way. And while most Jewish celebrations were feasts, right? This one was kind of like a reverse feast for specific ceremonial educational purposes. And now after the Day of Atonement, there became many examples in Jewish history, some in the Old Testament, of some voluntary fasting. Fasting that was not required. But the interesting thing is, every incident of fasting in the Old Testament or New Testament that was not associated with the Day of Atonement, the ceremonial side of it, every other incident of fasting was always connected with sorrow, burden, anxiety, heartbreak. There were one-day fasts, some three-day fasts, some examples of seven-day fasts, 21-day fasts, even a 40-day fast. For example, Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness when? Right after his baptism, right before he's about to go into his public ministry. And frankly, right before he's getting ready to be tempted by the enemy. So that's the history of atonement in the scripture. But then it's hijacked. Fasting is hijacked as man-made religion is ought to do, the Pharisees turned this beautiful image into a burden. But religious Pharisees had gone crazy with fasting. Matter of fact, now they were saying, if you want to be a good Jew, you better fast twice a week on Monday and Thursday. Well, forget that. Count me out of Judaism right there. You know what I'm saying? Like Monday is my big eating day. Frankly, Tuesday is a big eating day. Thursday. They're all big eating days. I don't have time to fast. I got eating to do. 
But if you were a fasting Pharisee, you would fast in a way so everyone would know, I am keeping the law. I'm keeping the rule. I'm fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. Look at me. I'm downtrodden and I'm fasting. These fasts became a requirement for anyone that wanted to be considered good Jews in good religious standing with the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple. Really what happens here, these people become externalists, pursuing a relationship with God through works and self-righteous religious discipline. Fasting became a way to impress people, to enhance your reputation as a religious sage or leader or a pious follower of Jehovah. So then we want to talk about the political religious adversaries that Jesus has. There are two groups mentioned in this story. There are Pharisees, and then there are these people called disciples of John, people who were following John the Baptist, who now, by the way, is off the scene, remember? He's been arrested and, and uh, soon executed. And these people are not happy about how Jesus and his followers They don't fast on Mondays and Thursdays. As a matter of fact, they never fast at all. We know the Pharisees' motivation. They want Jesus dead, gone, destroyed, discredited. They want his ministry to end. But this idea of what about the disciples of John? There are two possibilities, right? There are some who are probably sincere and curious as to why there's no fasting on Monday and Thursday with Jesus. And John said this was the greatest person. Nobody, I mean, I'm not even worthy to latch his sandals, John said. And I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. So clearly Jesus is important. So why aren't they fasting like good Jews? There are other people that are probably calling themselves disciples of John to capitalize off of John's popularity and his death. Because if you say, well, I'm a disciple of John, even though he's gone now, you can follow me. And you'd get power, prestige, and money as you became a rabbi who identified with John, and it was a way to gain a following. But regardless, neither group could understand how Jesus could be a spiritual leader and neglect the religious things that they loved. Frankly, they loved more than grace. But it's interesting, right? It's not that Jesus and his disciples don't fast. That'd be bad enough. But it seems like Jesus and his boys, all they do is go from one big dinner party to another. (laughs) Not only are they not fasting, they're feasting. They're partying. To make it even worse, they're partying with sinners like Levi, the tax collector, the people with leprosy, the sick people. Jesus goes into a town, he heals people, they get excited, they invite him to dinner, they have a big, big meal. So not only is he not fasting on Monday, Thursday, his calorie counts like 6,000 probably on those days. I mean, how can this guy and his group be in touch with God? They're not fasting. They can't see Jesus for who he is or why he's even come. And why has he come? To smash into pilverines. That's not a real word. What's the read? What's the word? Smithereens, pulverines, smithereens, pilverines, whatever. That is a word right now, as of today. Boom, smash into pilverines. <laughs> Their system of self-righteousness. They just don't get it. And then we see the trick questions. Throughout his ministry, when the religious people ask Jesus a question, it's always to criticize him or to trap him. To catch him breaking a religious law, violating a tradition, breaking the Sabbath, etc. And just like all religion, the goal isn't to help connect with God. 
It's to gain a following, an influence, and power. So their questions aren't so they could learn. They want to win an argument. They want to discredit him. They want to steal his followers. Especially since some of them are quite wealthy, like Peter and Levi. They wanted to embarrass, expose, delegitimize Jesus. So the threat to their way of life would be squashed. Here's what they're really good at. They're good at fasting. They're really, really, really good at fasting. But not at listening or following or obeying. They have gotten fasting completely wrong. They are confused. They are perplexed. They are triggered. (laughs) They are upset. And they think they have a legitimate beef with this healing rabbi who, oh, by the way, happens to be the creator of the universe. So let's look at the spiritual side. What about God? What does he do and why does, how does he do it? Jesus has a message. He is greater than fasting. Everything Jesus says and does is purposeful as he slowly begins to pull the curtain back on the New Testament, i.e. the gospel. From disregard to religious traditions, associations with despised and rejected people, his intentional healing on the Sabbath day, his public calling out of disciples, his authoritative preaching on grace and mercy and forgiveness in the synagogue and against the temple system, all that stuff is for one reason and one reason only, to declare and display the superiority of his gospel over the law, over religion, over the temple, and over politics. It's all for one purpose to display how the gospel stands above all and needs no help from man-made institutions. A gospel not to be blended in with the Judaism of the day, it stands alone above all in superiority and mercy and power. So he uses three very relatable modern-day at the time analogies that all of them would completely understand and leave them with no excuses about their question about why don't you fast. The first one he talks about is the bridegroom. You ever been to a party where there's a sulker in there ruining it for everyone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus says, the Messiah is here. This is not a time to fast. It's a time for celebration. He's arrived. See, they would understand this. You know why? Because a wedding feast is the most important celebration of the day. All the parties that people threw, the one that had the most social impact, the one that said the most about who you are and what you believed and who you hung out with, that one was the wedding feast. It was the most important party anyone could throw in the history of their life. The host would pull out all the stops to throw a party of his life. It was the mark of your standing in society. And to be at a wedding feast, by the way, they could last several days, And be moaning and sulking was a huge insult to the host. Jesus and his disciples, sinners included, are celebrating. And they should celebrate. This is not the time to fast. There will be a time later when the bridegroom is gone. Things are going to get hard. Trust me, you're going to go through difficult times. There'll be a reason to fast. Now's not the time. That's a pretty good illustration. Then he talks about the old garment. Back then, when things were torn, 
you had to fix them. You couldn't just go to Galilee Walmart and buy something new. They took a long time to make. They were very expensive. It was hard to find stuff. And when something ripped, you had to fix it. Everything was made by hand. So you had to repair damaged cloths or garments. And only a fool would take a new unshrunken patch and put it on an old cloth or garment. In short order, the patch would contract, causing the patch to fail. The garment would begin to rip on other places. The hole gets bigger, and it's been a complete waste of time, and now you've further ruined your damaged garment. Jesus says the rituals and ceremonies of fasting are like a worn-out old garment with new holes that need to be patched. But you can't patch it with the gospel. He is saying they are not compatible and they cannot be mixed because the gospel is new. It's fresh. It's new wine, which makes them go right into the next analogy, what we just sung about this morning. Do you guys know that new wine is the gospel? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not trials and tribulations, you know, because wine is crushed, although that seems like it'd be a good one. That's not what it is. The new wine is the gospel. See, here's why he uses this illustration of new wine. This wine was the most important beverage of the day. Some of you say, well, it's important today too, trust me. (laughs) But this was the most important beverage of the day for health reasons, because of danger of contamination, etc. Fermentation would protect wine for long periods of time, storing it. Matter of fact, it was safer than storing water. Even storing water was risky. But you could store wine because the fermentation process would make it so that you wouldn't get some sort of disease or anything like that. In addition, it took a long time for this wine to be made. So you can see why, since it's the most important drink, the only thing you can really store, it's a very valuable commodity. And so old used wineskins left unused for a while, made out of the skin of goats, it would start to crack. They'd be compromised. And if you tried to use them with the new wine... The chemicals of the new wine, as it ferments, causes problems with the old skin, and it will break open. And all the wine that you work so hard to have and that you need during those days just for health reasons, all that wine becomes useless as it is spilled on the ground. Jesus is teaching them that his gospel cannot be contained within first century Judaism and all of its wineskins with its fasting laws, etc., The new wine of the gospel is incompatible with their old cracked system of personal piety and self-righteousness. Isn't that a great analogy? I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, Jesus was warning them that their king had come. They would not be able to deal with this king unless they got rid of the structures that made it impossible for them to receive him. Unlike all other scribes, the gospel of Jesus wasn't meant to be mixed with the old system. All other scribes would say, here's a new way to look at it, and here's how it fits into what the priests are saying. Jesus says, what I got to say has nothing to do with them. Matter of fact, my message is designed to tear down the temple in three days and replace it all together to usher in a new way of worshiping and connecting with the Father that has nothing to do with fasting. All right, some of you are nervous because you've been given teaching on fasting your whole life. Surely Joe's going to bring it back around and we'll all agree, right? I don't know. 
I want to talk about fasting today. The first thing I want to discuss is this idea of fasting and how it mixes with grace. For years, the teaching about the discipline of fasting really perplexed me as a young Christian and as a young man training for ministry and studying the scripture. I mean, how can we as Christians rely on salvation by grace through faith in the work of Christ on the cross, but then put somehow our trust in works like fasting for our sanctification? Yes, Jesus, we trust in you for our salvation, but I got it from here. I'll sanctify myself through not having pizza on Mondays and Thursdays. Understand what Jesus is doing here. He's using fasting as a bigger picture of religion versus the gospel. And he's saying this simply, you don't need both. If you're trying to use one to approach God, then you're wrong because there's only one way to come to the Father. It's through me. And we are tempted, and I'll stick with me. Don't tune me out yet. We are tempted to think that things like fasting and prayer and etc., all that stuff, that these things enhance our connection or standing with God. And then we begin to fall into a trap of relying upon these activities for that deeper, more meaningful connection to the Father. But wait, isn't that works-based righteousness? Isn't that the antithesis of the gospel of Jesus? But is there ever a time that we're supposed to fast, maybe? I mean, right now, we don't have a day of atonement anymore. So the one required fast in the Old Testament has been, what? Done away with because of the Lamb of God. So the atonement fast is gone. And there are no more required fastings. We don't have to patch the garment. We don't need to recycle old wineskins or sulk at a wedding party when we should be celebrating. But yet many Christians do. And that takes us beyond fasting. This concept that says that fasting can get you closer to Jesus can be easily seen as an offshoot, right, to other types of Christianity and teaching that champion the unbiblical idea that values religious activity over grace and mercy and faith. I could name some denominations or cults, but I won't do that. But there are anything that says any type of way that there is a works-based concept of Christianity, not just salvation, but your sanctification. This leads to a misunderstanding of a phrase that is very popular out there. It's not in the scripture, but it becomes very, pos- very popular. There's a phrase out there called spiritual disciplines. Not that there's anything wrong with spiritual disciplines, But to rely upon them for your sanctification, isn't that concept sort of oxymoronic? Isn't it antithetical to what Jesus is teaching in this story? Because many people include fasting among the spiritual disciplines. Well, there is a place for fasting. And I want to tell you what it looks like. But the question is, how are we supposed to think differently about fasting now? That Look, I just broke it down for you. It's pretty clear in Scripture, right, what Jesus teaches about fasting. 
There's no like, well, yeah, but there's room in there. If you look at the Greek, no, the Greek says no. <laughs> Just letting you know. I looked at it. As with Old Testament prophets and fasting in the New Testament, Jesus included. The only time there was fasting was during times of intense spiritual need. That's it. When something heavy on the heart and the mind made eating the last thing on their mind, the least of their concerns. It's not some sort of manufactured religious, spiritual, pious solemnness. I want to connect to God, so I will not eat donuts this Sunday at church. <laughs> That's not what fasting's about. But when something is heavy on your heart and your mind, you begin to have this desire to connect with the Father. You see, an important ingredient for strong connection to Christ. You want to get connected to Christ? Maybe that's why you fast. You want a connection to Christ? The most important ingredient to connection to Christ is actually suffering. Dealing with the dark side of living by faith in this world. But Americans have done a really good job of turning Christianity into victory. Comfort. Stressing the positive, success, a religion of happiness, and a religion of satisfaction. All the while, most Christians in the rest of the world have lives filled with turmoil, suffering, and persecution. They get a better sense of God than we do. So here was the Sunday sermon preview for this week that I put up on social media. Biblical fasting is a spiritual response to real life. It's not a pathway to righteousness. So the privilege, the gift of desiring the Father more than anything in the world, especially during heartbreak, tremendous stress or loss or anxiety, this supernatural desire given by the Holy Spirit to cling to Jesus, to cry out to him, to pray to him because you don't know where else to go. It is God moving in you to bless you with the connection to him that we need. Not some manufactured religious solemnness. I will tell you for me, your pastor, the times that my relationship with God went deeper, than any other time, it wasn't during when I tried fasting. I fasted for two hours one day. <laughs> Nothing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the most special, deepest times for me were during intense pain and suffering. In the moment of my greatest despair, our greatest despair as a family that many of you know about, I didn't care about food. I was crushed. I wanted my father. I cried out to him. I prayed to him. I didn't even think about pizza. All I could think about was Jesus. It had nothing to do with Pastor Joe's spiritual discipline or religious aptitude or his own personal godliness. I just wanted to talk to God because my heart was breaking and I didn't eat. That's biblical fasting. That's what fasting looks like when it is born of the spirit and not religion.
Fasting is our natural physical response to a world that we don't connect to spiritually anymore. Because when pain and heartache and all those things begin to come upon us, we need our Father. And God has designed us with the new man, with the spirit man within us, to desire him more than food when we are in desperation. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to close with a great example of what a moment of fasting might look like from Scripture. And it is from King David at one of his lowest moments in his life. He is running from Saul. Saul wants to kill David because Saul has found out that God has chosen David to be the next king. And Saul doesn't like that. Saul is king right now. He wants to keep being king. And he wants his son to be king. So he says, I'm going to chase David to anywhere I need to and kill him. So David's hiding out in a cave for days. He can't go home. He knows the king wants to kill him. And he writes Psalm 142. I know it's small up there. I'm just going to read it to you. If you can follow along, great. If not, don't worry about it. I'm going to read it. You are my refuge, a prayer of David when he was in the cave. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell before him my trouble. When my spirit is fainting within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden traps for me. I look to the right and see there is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I might give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal with me bountifully with me. That's the time for fasting. Heavenly Dad, help us to dispel the temptation to think that we can get closer to you through trying hard. Yes, the scripture teaches us that if we truly have been saved, that that our lives will change, things will be different, we'll do different things, we'll say different things, we'll think different ways. But we aren't made righteous by our works, by our activity. We are made righteous by your spirit. And Lord, we recognize that the scripture also teaches extremely clearly in many places that it is your times, the times that you are closest to us is when we are hurting and struggling and suffering. Those moments where we are driven to cling to you and let go of the things of the world. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's food because you have given us in our spirit, man, the desire to want you more than anything else. May those be our times of fasting. sing one final song together this morning.